I'm wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Michelle Neeland, and this is the Wildlife Health Connections Podcast. We're taking you deep into every corner of wildlife health and conservation. Let's go. Hey, friends, and welcome to episode number eight. You know, one of the many consequences of this whole coronavirus pandemic is that we've all had to switch to doing a lot more work online as opposed to in person. And if there's a small silver lining in all of this, it's that I've actually gotten to meet some really cool people online over the course of the last year that I may not have had the chance to meet otherwise. Last summer, I connected with one person in particular who I feel incredibly lucky to have gotten to know. And that person is my guest today, wildlife veterinarian, Dr. Mark Johnson. As you'll hear in this episode, Dr. Mark is an experienced wildlife vet who's been working with free-ranging wildlife for over 35 years. He's been involved in wildlife capture and handling projects across the globe and spent many years working in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. He was actually the first wildlife veterinarian for the National Park Service and served as Yellowstone National Park's veterinarian for several years. Through all this work, he's led capture efforts with many species, including grizzly and black bears, mountain lions, and many others. And he even served as the project veterinarian for the Yellowstone Gray Wolf Reintroduction Project from 1995 to 96. A huge part of handling large and potentially dangerous wildlife species like bears and wolves is knowing how to safely capture and anesthetize these animals so researchers can do their work. If you need to apply a tracking collar or collect blood samples, for example, you often can't safely do this with the animals awake. This is often referred to as chemical immobilization or chemical capture, which basically means using drugs to knock the animals out. This can be done using something like a dart gun to deliver the drugs from far away if you can't get close, or using something with a lower impact like a syringe pole, a blow dart, or even injecting by hand if you can get close enough to the animal. To do all of this, you really need an expert, someone like Dr. Mark. But in addition to all his veterinary knowledge about the medical and pharmacological side of wildlife capture and chemical immobilization, the thing I think that really sets Dr. Mark apart is his whole approach to handling wildlife. He focuses on not just what to do, but how to do it, and how to do it in a way that emphasizes respect and calm energy toward the animal throughout the entire process. This approach helps empower wildlife professionals to feel confident and even a sense of joy in their work when handling and anesthetizing a wild animal, which is usually a scenario that could cause high stress for everyone involved, both the humans and the animal. And as you'll hear throughout this interview, there's just so much more to chemical capture and immobilization of wildlife than just knowing what drugs to use, what doses, and how to use a dart gun. For decades, Dr. Mark shared all of his methods during his in-person wildlife capture courses, which he taught around the country, training state and federal wildlife agencies, zoo staff, and many other wildlife organizations. But now in the age of COVID, he's transitioned all of this into online courses. So if you're a wildlife professional, biologist, zoo staff, or a student interested in working with wildlife as a career, I highly recommend you go and check out his courses by clicking the links in the show notes. These are by far the most in-depth and up-to-date online chemical immobilization courses out there for wildlife. There really is nothing else that compares to his courses. And believe me, I've looked and I've taken several others myself. And even though it's taught online, you still have direct access to Dr. Mark 
and he's there to support you along the way. So if this sounds like something you're interested in, take a peek at the show notes and definitely check out those links. During his 30 plus years as a wildlife vet, Dr. Marks collected some pretty fascinating stories, and you're gonna get to hear some of them today. Our interview was scheduled for an hour and a half, but we ended up going for almost three hours, and the time just flew by. He's such a good storyteller, and at times I kind of completely forgot we were even recording a podcast. I was just so captivated, and I feel like I could listen to his stories for hours. There was just too much good stuff to fit into one episode, so this is actually going to be a two-parter, and we're going to continue all of this in episode number nine in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited for you guys to meet Dr. Mark. This is a great episode, so let's jump right in. Here's my interview with Dr. Mark Johnson. A lot of people ask me about the projects that I participated in, and it's it's been amazing for me. I'm extremely grateful for all the experience I've had. I've been capturing and handling wildlife for over 30 years. I'm really interested because there's still a relatively small number of veterinarians today that focus their whole career on free-ranging wildlife, as opposed to vets who treat wild animals that are in captivity in a zoo or a rehab facility, for example. So my first question for Mark was, how did he get into this work in the first place? When I was a veterinary student, I heard rumors that second-year veterinary students could go out in the field with Colorado Division of Wildlife to capture bighorn sheep. And I was just a freshman at the time, and yet I was so persistent. I worked around a few roadblocks that were presented to me, and I went right to the Division of Wildlife and asked if I could join in some weekend. And, and so as a first-year veterinary student, I had a chance to handle my first bighorn sheep. They were capturing them with drop nets at the time. Oh, wow. uh, baited in with fermented apple mash, which is a, a secret sauce, of course. Oh my goodness, <laughs> fermented apple mash. Yes, yeah, it was a big deal, big deal. And, and so that was my first experience. I remember being invited to participate and they said, you're gonna have to collect blood very frequently because we've got a, uh, cortisol study to see how they react to stress in capture. And I had never collected blood from an animal before. So I asked permission and I got six domestic sheep, all totally covered in thick, thick wool. And without shaving any of the animals, I respectfully, even then, practiced collecting blood from the jugular on these animals with three inches of wool covering their neck. Wow. And, and that was my first step into getting ready for the capture. Here we are in this, my first capture, we had four or five uh, teachers, instructors who are veterinarians. We had twice as many biologists may, maybe, and a drop net. We caught nine bighorn ewes. Wow and four died, oh. four died due to bloat. Bloat. This is a condition that happens in ruminants like sheep, goats, and cows, where part of their digestive tract called the rumen fills up with gas. 
and it can become so distended and so huge that the animal actually has difficulty breathing and they can go into respiratory distress. And I was, um, I was quite impacted by the, at the time. I was really quite surprised and, and, um, and maybe at the time I overlooked it uh, more than I do now, but that was my first capture. Wow. What was the reaction, I'm curious, of the, the crew leaders? Were they surprised or were they just like, yep, that's sort of what happens. A few of them die. And they just sort of thought that was normal. Well, that's a great question. That was 1983 and that was normal. And at the wow. time, we all accepted, the, I, we, I'm entering into the wildlife profession and the wildlife profession accepted 10% mortality. That was what happened whenever you capture animals. And uh, I remember visiting with my mentor one time. He was doing a necropsy and I asked, how did the antelope capture go? And he said, it went great. I said, did you lose any antelope? And he stopped his dissection. He looked up at me. He said, did we handle any antelope? Oh, yes. Yeah. So this has all influenced me in, in emphasizing the practices that we can take the tools we can choose, our attitudes, which are the biggest factor, to minimize the deaths that we cause. I have killed and injured many animals. And, and we, we need, I'm facing that, I face that, and I do whatever I can to make it better for, for the subsequent uh, researchers and managers that are out there, and zookeepers, absolutely. So that was my, one of my first experiences handling wildlife. Yeah, I, I can totally see how this has really influenced your your current work. I mean, wow. And and I guess you have such a different perspective on the evolution of all of this work because I mean, you're talking about things that were being done and work that you were doing um honestly like even before I was born. <laughs> so <laughs> so your perspective, you know, doing this for over 30 years and seeing the evolution of our practices with with handling and and capture and how we've gotten so much better is really interesting. Well, and and I want to say also that I am extremely impressed and grateful for all my mentors, those those veterinarians and those biologists who taught me how to work with the animals, you know, and they all were dedicating their lives to it as well and doing the best they could for the information they had. And they were having scrutiny over their own methods and techniques. So, you know, I really am a product of, of wildlife biologists. I, I rub elbows with uh, wildlife veterinarians and we have fun jam sessions sharing and talking and I've learned from a lot, but it's the wildlife biologists who have taught me so much on, on how to move about in the field, how to do the practical work, and, and how to, wow, just how to work with the animals, yeah. When I first stepped into the profession, I found that there was a huge separation between the biologists and the veterinarians. And the biologists claimed that every veterinarian thought they knew more than the biologist. And when I talked to the veterinarians, they thought they knew more than the biologists. And, and what I have found over the years is the bridge has strengthened. 
that the, the veterinarian is willing to learn from the biologist, the biologist is willing to learn from the veterinarian, and there's a wonderful collaborative relationship that forms. Yep, I couldn't agree more about the importance of wildlife vets and wildlife biologists working together. I liked one wildlife biologist so much, I married him. So I went through veterinary school taking every wildlife elective I could. But when I graduated, I completely forgot about wildlife. Absolutely true story. And they hmm. train you to work in private practice. That's what you are groomed to be as a domestic animal veterinarian. Right, and yeah. yeah. I, I don't know how it happened, but I forgot about wildlife and I searched for a mixed practice. I didn't want to run a practice by myself because I'm a very poor businessman. And uh, that wasn't gonna work, I knew that. I found a mixed practice in Oregon. And the exciting thing was, is they worked with exotics. There was exotic cat club that used them exclusively. And so one minute I would be doing a bone surgery on a dog. The next minute I might be doing a, a pregnancy check on a cow. And the next moment I'd be vaccinating a bobcat. I actually declawed a black panther uh, in that practice. And oh my goodness, wow. So that was my first step. And, and, but it, was, it wasn't right for me. The practice wasn't a good fit. So then I worked in another practice in uh, Montana and that fell apart without my influence, I might add, but it fell apart uh, among the other colleagues in the practice. So I, I drove around Montana, which is my, where my roots are here, and I asked myself, not what should I do, but what do I want to do? And now instead of following my head, I'm following my heart. And I was driving north up to Kalispell, Montana, still searching for a practice. Soul searching inside as I'm driving, and I was on the west side of Flathead Lake, and it hit me in the chest, this, this idea, and I pulled over to the next phone booth and told my parents I was going to be a wildlife veterinarian for the rest of my life. So just like, just like that? It's something... like the memory came all back from vet school. All of a sudden, I realized, it, and this had been maybe two years passing. So I settled in Missoula, Montana, and I became a relief veterinarian working in private practices as a substitute when they went on vacations or had leave. And, and that gave me part-time income to start working as a biologist. And, um, and I stepped into the world of wildlife capture and handling that way. This is a great piece of advice for any students out there. Sometimes you have to be a little creative in designing your career and finding those opportunities beyond the job boards. The best question I could ever ask was going to some wildlife biologist or agency and ask them, what can I do for you? It is an incredible question that opens up the door so many times. Yes, yes. And, and if you hear, oh, nothing really, thank you very much, just stay in touch and just stay in touch and, and there's ways of being persistent without pestering and let them know that you really care. That's the, one of the keys. So 
I uh, started working as a relief veterinarian in private practice. I worked for two years in 14 different practices over that time. And I started working seasonally as a biologist. And it stepped me into the world of working with black and grizzly bears. I co-instructed a black bear handling course for Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks. And they knew I hadn't handled bears before, but I knew immobilizing drugs. And so I co-instructed this bear handling course. And that's when they asked, would you assist in the field? Would you join us? So for two springs, uh, two they were two month projects, two years in a row, we captured black and grizzly bears. Wow. I love that Mark didn't start small and ease his way into it. He just jumped right in and off the bat started working on grizzly bear capture. There's quite a few animals I haven't handled. I'm, I'm limited mostly to the North American species, although I haven't handled a polar bear or a wolverine. And marine mammals I still want to experience. But with the animals I've handled, uh, people wonder what the most exciting animal for me is. And I have to say, hands down, it's the grizzly bear. The grizzly bear is the most amazing animal to handle. And for me, it's actually a mixture of emotions. I believe genetically, we have kind of an innate fear of grizzlies in our, in our prehistoric history with those animals and how they used to prey on us. And though there's a little bit of fear, there's a, a bit of anxiety, and there's a bit of risk when we chemically immobilize grizzlies because even if the bear doesn't wake up because of really good immobilizing drugs, there's other bears out there that could stop by and visit. They have friends too. And so there's a bit of anxiety. There's this kind of this genetic fear a bit. There's this awe of this ability to touch this animal and, and this exhilaration and being out in the most wild places possible and the privilege of doing this. So it really is a mixture of emotions for me. And the best way I can describe it is it's a combination of kayaking and going to church. So that's, uh, that's my favorite animal to handle. I think the most physically challenging animal for me to handle has been the mountain lion. After I was on the Grizzly Project, I was in the Glacier National Park area quite a bit. And they had a cat come into the Lake McDonald area and they had concerns about this mountain lion causing problems. They called on me and said, could I help them with this mountain lion? And I'd never handled a mountain lion before. Well, the cat ran away and didn't need me, fortunately. And, uh, I asked around, who is the best mountain lion researcher there is? And everyone at the time said, Carrie Murphy in Yellowstone Park. And, Car and it's all justified. He's amazing. So I contacted Carrie and I asked him, could you use me as a field technician? I'm a veterinarian. Um, I want to learn how to capture handle cats. Uh, and I hear your your extremely good at what you do. So he hired me as a, uh, as a biologist in Yellowstone Park, and I had the most exhilarating job. I was team leader of two capture teams. 
we had uh, hounds and we would hike in the back country of Yellowstone Park, capturing mountain lions for research and radio collaring them. It was extremely challenging physically because we covered so many miles in the back country, often many miles away from the nearest road. To do one cat chase at times, we would climb a mountain and drop down the other side, cross a creek, climb another mountain, only to realize that the telemetry signal of the cat we wanted to catch was back where we came from. So we had to go back and reverse our step. We had captures, we'd start at seven in the morning, we'd have captures at 5 p.m. at night up in the high mountain, uh, high mountain landscape well after dark when we had to finally drug the cat. It was a time when I actually developed a method for safe needle and syringe handling. And it's evolved into what I now call braced, B-R-A-C-E-D, braced needle and syringe technique. And so at five in the evening with no lunch uh, to speak of and cold, and I'm trying to draw the drugs up. And I've learned how to touch our hands and work by bracing our hands as we're drawing up the drugs, bracing our hands as we're loading syringes. And it's a great technique that I hope will become actually more standardized because accidental injection is the biggest risk in working with immobilizing drugs. And the braced needle and syringe technique will prevent 80 or 90% of that. You'll still stick yourself, but not, not as often. Yeah, it's funny because that sounds like such a small point, but it, like you said, it's not. That's a huge safety hazard when you're in the field. And like you said, it's freezing and you're shivering and you're trying to drop these incredibly, in a lot of cases, incredibly potent drugs that you're using to immobilize these animals where you know, if you accidentally stick yourself, you, you could potentially be in trouble and then you're in the middle of the wilderness. It's not like you're down the street from just popping the car and, and drive to the ER. You, you know, that could be a really bad situation for, for the people. Yeah, it really, it really could be. And, and so that braced uh, needle and syringe technique, I first developed on that mountain lion study in Yellowstone Park. This is no joke. Accidentally injecting yourself, even with a tiny drop of some of the drugs used in wildlife capture, could actually prove fatal for a person. For example, a drug called carfentanil, which is sometimes used for immobilizing large wildlife like elk, is an opioid drug that is 10,000 times more potent than morphine. But as Mark points out, it's not just the drugs that pose a risk during wildlife capture. And there were some very potentially dangerous situations. We climbed up one mountain. We were out of the park south of Bozeman, Montana, and we climbed up, on a, up a mountain to capture some kittens. We followed the mother uh, with her radio collar and radio telemetry. And there were two teams of us together. We split up. And as we split up, a huge snowstorm came in. And it dropped two feet of snow. And we were uh, well after dark. We could barely follow our tracks because it was snowed so much. We did capture a kitten and uh, were able to release it. 
It was a ketamine xylazine combination, so it was metabolized quite quickly. And, um, and then when we backtracked, we were on top of this mountain in the dark, in a blizzard, couldn't find our tracks. We didn't know which direction we were at. Um, and I don't recall if we, I mean, we always kept a compass with us. We tried to figure out the directions, but knowing your direction and knowing which way is safe to go down a mountain is two different things. And I remember we, we figured out which way we had to go. We had to work our way down to the snowmobiles. And the snow was well up to our knees by that time, still coming down in a hard blizzard. And uh, Carrie and I were hiking down together. And, and he, he kind of stumbled in the soft snow and sort of laid down on his side. And, and we were exhausted. And he said, Mark, this feels so good. And I said, yeah, Carrie, it feels good enough to kill you. Let's keep moving. And that's oh the God. truth. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So we worked our way down that mountainside. We found the snowmobiles. Um, our partner's snowmobile was still there. And, and it's well, well after dark. We found out later they came down the other side of the mountain and hitchhiked um, to, uh, to get to the, the vehicles. But uh, we snowmobiled and we found a light on the highway, uh, some headlights on the highway and a truck had stopped. It was actually a fish and, uh, fish and game employee, Montana Fish, Wildlife and Parks, who saw lights in the blizzard and stopped to see if, they, if, if they, those people needed help. And I managed to get the keys, the truck keys, out of my pocket after I got off the snowmobile, but I could not physically put the key in the, in the, in the door to unlock it. He had to take it out of my hand to, 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 turn it, to, let the, to open the door and let the truck get started and warmed up. So those were some amazing times. And gosh, you just feel more vibrant and alive <laughs> after those kind of things. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I bet, I bet. Yeah, there's that whole other piece. And I think probably in some of those cases, the actual working with the wildlife sometimes is, is almost the easy part. It's actually <laughs> getting out there and getting back in one piece and safe. That's can be really hard. Well, absolutely. And it's actually the more dangerous side of wildlife capture and handling. Okay. So if we're talking about all the wildlife species of Yellowstone Park that Mark's worked with, so far we've covered grizzly bears and mountain lions. But there's another iconic apex predator that recently returned to the park. Can you guess what it is? When I was on the mountain lion study, we were based out of Yellowstone Park. And I started hearing rumors that they were going to reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone. I'm glad you brought this up because I was like waiting to ask you to talk about the Wolf Reintroduction Project. So yes, let's get into it. Well, the Wolf Reintroduction Project was the most amazing experience that I have been involved with. It was uh, several years in the running and um, just the most, uh, and it was frontier work. There were so many times when we were planning on how to bring wolves into Yellowstone Park and so many ways to do it. Do we breed them outside the park and, and bring them in? Do we capture them and just 
dump them or release them in the park? I mean, what do we do? And so many times I, I literally wanted to go to the library and look up how to bring in wolves into a new landscape. And there was no book to look up. It just wasn't there. And of course, this is before the internet. That's exactly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yes. What brought me to it was uh, quite remarkable though. Uh, as I was working on the mountain lion study, I heard rumors that they were going to reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone Park. And sorry, just for context, what, what year was this? The actual wolf reintroduction occurred in 1995-96. And I was on the Yellowstone Cougar study in 1990-91. So about five years before the project actually took off. I heard rumors that they were going to reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone. So I went to the very top. I went to the head of research, John Barley in Yellowstone and uh, visited with Wayne Brewster uh, also in, uh, in that department. And I said this very respectfully and very humbly. And I suggested that if they were going to bring wolves into Yellowstone, they needed to know how to drug them and handle them and transport them and hold them. They needed to study the diseases that wolves would be exposed to in Yellowstone Park when they're released and what diseases they could bring to Yellowstone Park and expose to the wildlife there. So from my visits with them while I'm on the lion study, they asked me to write up a job description and I became the project veterinarian for the 1995-96 wolf reintroduction. It was an amazing honor and incredible experience. An incredible experience, but not an easy one. And reintroducing a predator like a wolf back onto the landscape can be tricky especially when there were a lot of people who didn't want to see them come back. We had many years of planning. A lot of it was political planning in a way. There had to be, you know, everything in the works for reintroducing wolves. The environmental organizations universally across the U.S. started promoting wolves and the value of wolves. And it was easier with Elder Leopold era talking about the importance of predators. And so it was a continuation of that dialogue, which had been forgotten. And now wolves were no longer important to persecute. At least that was the message. It was important for them to preserve. And it was an easy message to make because Yellowstone Park had virtually every wildlife species they had prehistorically except for wolves. There was a huge imbalance of, um, of browsing. They called it overgrazing in, in an era of Yellowstone Park, but it really was browsing of the willows and the aspen. And uh, it was because of too many elk and elk not moving around very much, but nobody really knew that at the time. So they, the conservation groups in five years educated the American people to see the value of wolves. And that was an amazing shift in mentality and in value towards the environment. That, I think that was incredibly fast for that shift. 
Um, I want to quickly say as a sidebar that many people didn't make that shift. And, and I cowboyed fresh out of high school before I went into college. And my dearest friends are ranchers. And, and I honor their lifestyle. I would rather have overgrazing than subdivisions any day. But there isn't necessarily overgrazing either. Their ranchers can be great stewards of the land. So even though some folks will always be anti-wolf, they were still able to move ahead with the project to reintroduce wolves to the Yellowstone area. But then the question became, how exactly do you do that? There was discussions of hard releases and soft releases. A hard release is when you move an animal to a new location and simply open up the transport crate and let them go. That's a hard release. A soft release is bringing them into a holding area and holding them for a period of time. And this is usually weeks to months at a time. So they tend to acclimate to the area. And the theory is, is that when you open up the gate and release the animal, they will not travel as far. We decided to go with both hard and soft releases. We would capture related animals in Canada, preferably breeding pairs, and bring them to acclimation pens in Yellowstone Park and hold them for four to five weeks. We really didn't know how long. And the theory would be that they would acclimate to the area and they wouldn't head straight back to Canada. We really didn't know what they were going to do. And then we would capture, when we caught related animals, we would get yearlings and younger wolves that normally would be dispersing from the pack anyways, and we would hard release those into central Idaho. And so that was the strategy. So then as project veterinarian for the project, I had to uh, learn how to build acclimation pens and how do I build crates for transporting the wolves. I contacted every captive wolf program and gave them a questionnaire. How do we build a pen? How do we feed them? How is a wolf that's used to a thousand square miles roaming free going to reset, respond or react to being in a half acre pen? And I developed the acclimation pens from that information. I developed long-standing relationships with many of the captive wolf programs. Wolf Haven International, uh, this is back in 1992 maybe, uh, was extremely helpful. I had a chance to visit them, look at their facilities, and I still have a very long-standing relationship with them. During the, before COVID, I, I've been teaching live courses there for well over 10 years. So the captive wolf programs taught us how to build transport crates, how to build acclimation pens. And the pens had to be built in very specific ways. We don't want square corners in pens that hold wolves because they can climb square corners like a ladder. We wanted to have overhangs because wolves can climb a fence and an overhang 
leaning into the pen will prevent them from doing so. Although we had some wolves that would grab the overhang by their teeth and hang from it. We saw oh that. God. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That must have been some quite the sight to come upon. It was. And, um, and it was a, a real learning experience. And actually, most of the, I'm going to kind of do a side note here. Most of the pens we approached when we brought food to the wolves, we actually had mules pulling a sleigh across the snow. This is all off-road. You're not allowed to drive off-road, but we could. We got permission um, with mules, and we didn't know how mules would respond to the smell of wolves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was all new wow. territory. It, it was a non-issue, actually. And... Um, we, we approached most of the pens by mule-drawn sleds to get to, to bring food and, and so forth, but one pen was approached with snowmobiles. These wolves had been hunted by snowmobiles oh. in Canada, oh, and right. those are the wolves that were hanging from the overhang. The terrifying experience for them must have been very significant. Wow. So, so all of this was uh, a real steep learning curve for everyone. So these holding pens, describe them a little bit more. Are they like chain link? You mentioned you tried to avoid corners. So were they round, oval? Great question. So as we are realizing we want to build holding pens for a soft release, we had to look at the regulations. Could we build anything on undisturbed land? I first looked at gravel pits that are off-road and away from public attraction, but none of the gravel pits of previously disturbed areas in Yellowstone were suitable. And we found some areas that were undisturbed. So we had to do um, exploration of endangered species of plants, for example. and. And we couldn't build any permanent structures. We couldn't drive posts into the ground. So I designed acclimation pens that were made out of portable panels, eight foot by eight foot, with a overhang attached to that panel. And we would attach them with saddle brackets. They had to be flown in by helicopter. Here is a helicopter lifting these panels off a flatbed truck on the road and flying them into a remote area, which I found by horseback actually. And, um, and we made half acre pens. There were curves, no rectangles. We had to have a digging barrier. So they were about a quarter acre in size. And when you make a pen that large, and this is a lesson for all zoos and captive animal facilities, you have to be able to catch the animal for regular management and annual physical exams for a permanent facility. So we had to design something for that. Any captive wolf facility should have a sub-enclosure. A sub-enclosure allows you to do many things. You can move the animal into that sub-enclosure to more easily deliver immobilizing drugs. You can let the animal wake up in a sub-enclosure so that it can still see its pack members and not be overly stressed, but it, be, it, it can be separated so that the pack members can't harm that wolf as it wakes up. And I learned about a variety of tools and techniques on how to move captive wolves, and most of those 
I learned from Wolfhaven International. So uh, I also had learned as I, as I got training in how to work with wolves, I learned about the Y-pole. And the Y-pole is an amazing tool for working with fractious canids. A Y-pole, basically exactly like it sounds, is a pole in the shape of a Y. It's got a long straight handle, and on one end it has two smaller extensions that come off in sort of a V-shape that can be placed over the animal's body. So the Y-pole can be used by working a wolf into a sub-enclosure, in a very low manner, and it is as important for attending to the ways of being as ways of doing. And you have a low, calm, but confident demeanor. Ways of being, it's like blending with a horse that doesn't want to be handled. And working with fractious dogs is the same way. So we can enter you know, with a low, low energy, but big confidence, we enter into the pen of a, of a wolf in the sub-enclosure where there's corners. We can softly and calmly and slowly corner that wolf and slide a Y-pole, and this is all methodical, um, slide the Y-pole on the neck and then inject drugs with a syringe pole. And we ask permission, we ask the wolf permission, can we work with you? That's the energy that I convey. When they sell Y-poles, the companies are saying, this is used to pin an animal to a wall or to a fence. And that's not how I'm introducing the Y-pole to the world. I'm actually introducing it to the animal welfare world. Um, the way that I'm teaching it is to blend with the animal learn dog speak, learn dog language. And with every step you take, you're either going to make them tense or relaxed. You ask, you watch that animal to let, to, to give you the feedback. Am I making the animal tense or relaxed? If I step forward and they get more tense and I have to know what that looks like, I have to know that licking of the lips means they're nervous. You have to learn these things. If I step forward and they get tense, Ah, I settle myself down and that, and I wait for the animal to settle. And then maybe I lean a little bit. I close that space with the Y pole by leaning much less intense than a step. And then maybe then move my arms to move it closer. And now the animal's used to that Y pole a little bit closer. And then I do another half step and I pause and relax and, and, you enter into this animal space in the most beautiful way. They will comply often, usually, unless they're very distorted, uh, like a socialized wolf, you know, growing up on a chain. That, that's another story. Then, then the wolf will comply and you use Y-pole syringe pole. In several captive animal facilities where I teach wolf capture and handling, and I've taught at the Minnesota Zoo twice and uh, other zoos. Um, they have a wide range of Y-poles, and they found that it's absolutely an essential tool anytime they walk into a pen with a wolf. But even after all the time they spent planning and designing the pens, they ultimately still didn't know how the wolves would react to being confined in the enclosure. That question, how will wolves react, 
when they're confined, they're used to 1,000 square miles and they're confined into a quarter acre and they're with other wolves. Well, they might attack each other. So I wanted a safe place for an insecure wolf to go. And that was the security box. There was a baffle in there so they could zip in the box, turn around, and now they could guard the entrance and be safe. Well, it was a way to capture wolves as well because a wolf would go in there terrified of us and, and not, not every wolf did, but a few did. And, and then I'd slide the guillotine door sh closed and I could lift up the roof, Y-pole syringe pole, drug the animal in a calm way. All done with low energy. Yeah, I love it. I'm sitting here just listening to your description of all of these things and the the way that you're approaching these captures. And I'm just, I'm so enthralled. And then at one point I kind of forgot. I was like, all right, we're recording a podcast here. <laughs> just, <laughs> I'm just so interested and it just makes so much sense if you can approach it with low energy, low stress. That's the way to go. And it's not just about a kindness for the animal. It's, you know, also it's safer for them. It's, you know, if you don't have to drug them, of course, that's safer for everybody involved. And if you do need to drug them, if they're all amped up and stressed, the drugs don't work as well, right? Exactly. We're sabotaging ourselves. And I emphasize throughout the foundations course, keep the heart rate down. And the drugs work better because it's the sympathetic hormones that fill the receptor sites where the drugs are, some of the drugs are, are, are trying to work. So yes, lower stress lets the drugs work better. And the other exciting thing for me, that's, that's just such rejuvenation is that when we work with animals with low energy and with cash, compassion and kindness, it feels good. It empowers us. It gives us joy in our work. Mark really is a master at using these low stress handling techniques for wildlife. And in the end, this benefits the animal, but also all the people involved in that capture event. And you can tell just by listening to him how passionate he is about sharing and teaching these skills through his courses. And in my courses, which are very unique, I emphasize the importance of care, compassion, and respect for every animal. And we can explore throughout the course, not just how to talk about it, but how to incorporate it into our tools, our techniques, and mannerisms. And that is such a profound experience for so many people. My biggest goal for this course is to truly support and help zoo and wildlife professionals, to make it easier for them in the field. And as a result, to make life better for the animals they're handling, to reduce pain and suffering and injury and death. These techniques are all about that. If life is easier for the wildlife or zoo professional in the field, and I consider being a, in a pen in the field as well, um, then they can do a better job of taking care of the animal if they're less stressed, if they're more prepared, if they can anticipate, they know ahead of time, we're going to do this, this, and this, and this. Okay, so let's move on and even pause once in a while. I talk about stopping midpoint in the middle of a chemical capture just to reevaluate how you're doing, how the animal's doing, and what's left to do. And so this course is here to sincerely and truly empower 
any zoo and wildlife professional anywhere in the world. And I will be exploring over the next few years how to make that even stronger by um, not only through my support during the course, but maybe eventually adding other people to provide this interactive support and, and help this course be customized for each person who takes it. That really would be my ideal goal. Mark's full course is called Foundations of Wildlife Chemical Capture, and he also has a short course on patient monitoring. If this sounds like something you'd be into, you can find more info and all the links you need in the show notes. So we've only just scratched the surface today, but in the next episode, we get to hear some of the untold stories from the Yellowstone Wolf Project. We hear the story of a wolf named Blue. So I looked over and all of a sudden this wolf, Blue, started running as fast as he possibly could straight at this volunteer. And I had the opportunity to see what my instinctive nature was about wolves. And it scared the crap out of me that this wolf was going to tear her to shreds. And we also learn that what happens in a Rocker, Montana truck stop stays in a Rocker, Montana truck stop. Many, you know, many things occurred along the way. There's a secret story that I maybe shouldn't ever reveal, but I will hear. So stay tuned. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Wildlife Health Connections podcast. If you liked what you heard, go hit that subscribe button and leave us a review. You can check us out on social media for some good content and advance notice of upcoming episodes. You can also get more information at wildlifehealth.org slash podcast.